The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine. It's Thursday, November 3rd, 2016, and this is a special edition of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. This is what you do when the Chicago Cubs win their first World Series since talking motion pictures and the modern zipper were invented. On Wednesday night, the Cubs beat the Cleveland Indians 8-7 to in 10 innings in Game 7 to come back from 3-1 to down and win the championship. Joining me now by phone to discuss from his home in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, the author of Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Good morning, Josh. And with us from New York is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. He's out on the streets to get the pulse of America. Hello, Mike. Yeah. Let me tell you, I am within sight of a pizzeria that <laughs> serves both thin and the thick. Um, I The am, world is changing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in a city where there is a mayor who serves daily, and uh, we don't take parking for granted, but I'm not quite making the Grand Park connection. Anyway, I saw a couple Cubs hats on the subway, and my kids are both wearing Cubs shirts, so we're really excited. I talked to Seth Stevenson, the uh, Red Sox fan, yesterday before Game 7, and he talked about the feeling of walking down the street wearing his Red Sox cap and just kind of nodding at people and yeah. and reveling. I'm sure you're seeing that in the streets of New York right now. Yeah, I think the Cubs are feeling the same the same thing. People are, people are definitely talking about it. So I, I hear people honking their horns there, Mike. They must be very people, excited about the victory. People are honking. People are excited. Uh, middle schoolers were flipping bottles. <laughs> <laughs> so, Stefan, there was a leadoff home run by Dexter Fowler off Corey Kluber. The game ended with a guy named Mike Montgomery for the Cubs getting his first career save and he was facing a guy, Michael Martinez, for the Indians, who right before he had uh, went up to the plate, Dave Cameron of Fangraph said, by the way, this guy might be the worst batter in baseball history. So it ended in kind of an unexpected way. And, you know, the Cubs went out to this early lead. The two, like, great unhittable closers for both teams, both were extremely hittable. The trajectory for the Cubs getting this first World Series win in 108 years was extraordinary i would say oh from the from the from the moment that theo epstein was hired i mean the i mean going back back, (laughs) let's go back i mean you think back to that that moment and there was this sort of oh it's inevitable now he did this with the red sox he's going to do this with the cubs but the the task was insane um or maybe not maybe we overvalue it because the cubs had been futile for a century um, and bringing in one executive, one 38 or 40 year old executive, however old Theo was at the time, to turn it around may have been sort of the preposterous sort of narrative shit that we do. But clearly, Theo Epstein knows what he's doing. Um, and he even cursed on television last night to celebrate. Very true. Uh, Mike, what was the moment that kind of stood out for you? The obvious one was the Rajay Davis home run off of Aroldis Chapman. That kind of played out how everyone expected and feared it would with the criticism of Joe Madden in Game 6 for bringing 
Chapman in in a game that the Cubs had something like a 97% chance to win. He comes back um, on short rest, you know, having thrown so many pitches on the series so far in Game 7. His velocity is down, and this guy who's not at all a power hitter hits a home run, two-run shot in the eighth inning to tie the game that was something like the third greatest championship swinging moment in World Series history for the right. team that ended up so, losing. Yeah, it would have been, uh, I guess, Mazarowski and uh, Joe Carter and then Rajay Davis. But Zobris rests that title from Davis. So first of all, yes, I agree with everyone. You can't say that in a game where no matter in the seventh inning of game six, even with the bases loaded, okay, uh, the highest leverage point that that game is going to get to, it still is 97%. So using Chapman doesn't help that much in that game. If you use them for a couple pitches, I don't think that would be the worst thing. It's pretty much the equivalent of him getting up and down, which happens all the time, and we don't even know it. Like, that doesn't even show up in the stats when a closer pitches after, you know, getting up the day before. But then to keep him out there, I didn't really understand it in Game 6. And then it comes back to bite you in Game 7. But I think that that was overrated. Look, if you want to say that Chapman gives up his first home run of the year and didn't look that sharp, and he had pitched, you know, what, what did they say, 90-something pitches in a three-game stretch. His previous high was with the Reds. It was 80-something. All right, how could you argue that that set of circumstances doesn't equal overuse? But, you know, Joe Buck was saying, I guess we have different stats. He was saying, oh, Davis is velocity down. He hasn't touched 100 on the gun. Meanwhile, the Fox broadcast itself is showing 101. So I, I, they, have, they do have different stats. ESPN was saying that his uh, fastballs to, not the sliders, but the fastballs to Davis were, I think, 101, 99, 101, and 98. Now, I think um, a different service had the fastball that went out at 97. My point here is this. A slightly diminished Chapman is still like the third greatest closer in baseball. So Madden mismanaged him, but how spent he was was overstated, as evidenced by the fact that he went out and got the Indians in a 1-2-3 inning next time out. I'm going to push back on that a little bit, Mike, because it's not simply velocity. It's also movement. There was a stretch in that inning where Chapman threw, I think, eight out of 10 um, breaking balls, sliders, I think. So he clearly wasn't trusting his fastball. And I think that's probably a better indicator of how effective his pitches were at that moment than whether the radar gun, which can have some discrepancies, um, you know, was you know, was indicating that he was still in the high 90s or even touching 100 on a couple of pitches. I think the biggest play of the game, and I thought this last night as I was watching it, was rookie Albert Almora tagging up and going to second base in the top of the 10th inning on a long fly ball by Chris Bryant to the warning track that Rajay Davis caught. Um, Jeff Sullivan has a fantastic deconstruction, you know, Zapruder deconstruction of that play on fan graphs, which I think is really worth reading. And he says that that play alone elevated the Cubs chances of winning from 50% with Almora on first base. Almora pinch ran for Kyle Schwarber, who had singled up to 57% when he, when he took second on the fly ball. And then the intentional walk to Anthony Rizzo that followed put it up to 59%. And putting Rizzo on base, of course, was the second run eventually after Ben Zobris doubled 
um, and there was a, what was the subsequent hit that made it a two-run game in a one-run win. And Zobrist had been the World Series hero for the Royals the previous year. There was this really fascinating combination of expected and unexpected heroes, which always seems to happen in, in baseball in decisive games like this. You have somebody like John Lester, who's won two World Series before, comes in and lives up to expectations after a slightly rocky start um, in his relief appearance and sort of comes through in the traditional veteran way that you would expect. Um, Then you have somebody like Rajay Davis, who is the exact opposite of a power hitter, hitting a home run off Chapman. And to sort of meet you guys in the middle, the thing that was fascinating about that home run to me was Chapman was not throwing as hard as he typically does. But it was still the hardest thrown ball the Indians hit for a home run all season, which is crazy yeah. um, that it's it would crazy. happen yeah. at that moment. Um, and so walking Rizzo to get to Zobrist, being a Mets fan and seeing what Zobrist did last year, like that seems like an incredibly poor idea. And yeah. then it turned out to be an incredibly poor idea. But, um, you know, getting back to a little bit of what I said on Monday, the managerial decisions really do loom large in games like this. But focusing so much on what Madden did and how that may or may not have affected Chapman does take away from what Chapman himself did, what Davis did. The fact, you know, there was even criticism on the broadcast last night of the fact that Andrew Miller, who'd been like more worked than any reliever in postseason history through more relief innings, than any uh, reliever ever in the playoffs, mm-hmm. like was rusty. And so maybe that's why he wasn't as good. I mean, just <laughs> at some point, you just have to evaluate what the players do and give credit or lack thereof to, you know, the pitchers and the hitters. Well, just to go back to uh, the, the Chapman decision, the Miller decision, another factor, and there's no way to quantify this, is the more pitchers, uh, get to be seen by hitters, the more hitters get yep. used to them. I mean, that is an advantage of relievers. So I thought bringing Chapman in game six, I don't know if it tired him so much. I'll grant you the location stuff, but he's still, I, I would say that in Madden's head, he still, he, he was, he made a mistake to use him in game six. Full stop. That was, I don't know if it was panic. I don't know if it was, you could make the case that he's trying to, you know, lock it up no matter what I'm going to do, no matter what. If we don't get to a game seven, I will always, uh, I will always kick myself. So maybe I'm overmanaging here, but fine. If you want to call it overmanaging, you can make that right. point. But you do let them see Chapman, and they saw. I would say that the well, yes, this has to be true. The Cubs saw Miller in a smaller amount of time than any team. So we're not only comparing Miller against a body of work where his usage was down. We're comparing him to, you know, the element of surprise and changing up what uh, his pitches are like as compared to the starting pitcher. I mean, it's so interesting with the, uh, you know, overmanaging in the postseason, especially that stat I was talking about with, oh, this is the most number of pitches that Chapman ever had. Yeah, but it's the only time that there's no, right. there's not a game tomorrow. So what is the max number of pitches? And doesn't how come... No one points out. I don't want to do the no one points out. But how come, even though Joe Buck said, quote, the amount of work caught up to Chapman, like what does caught up mean? I mean, he made a pitch that was that was all but unhittable. The location was off, but the velocity was up. I still say 
That's like a great pitch. And then he goes and gets all the outs in the next inning when everyone had the same kind of thinking that said the amount of work has caught up with him would say you got to pull him from the game now. Wrong. And that was a huge inning to keep the game tied. Right. So you could say wrong to bring him in when he brought him in right in the end to leave him in. Um, but that's totally second guessing. Can we move off of the sort of the technical analysis of this yeah. game and just talk yeah. about how incredibly bizarre and exciting the thing was from the first batter to the last? I mean, leadoff homer, then you had what, Javier Baez with two errors. I started keeping a list during the game. Kyle Hendricks gets pulled after four and two thirds innings looking fantastic. So if you want to talk about overmanaging, that might have been a moment where Joe Madden should deserve some credit. John Lester, who replaces him, doesn't move off the mound to pick up a bunt. David Ross throws a ball into Lake Erie. Andrew Miller comes in in the fifth inning. Kyle Schwarber stole second base. David Ross, 39, hits a home run in his final game in baseball. Two runs score on a wild pitch. Rajay Davis is homer. Chapman looks bad. There's rain. Kenny Rosenthal interviews an umpire. It was insane. <laughs> there was even a there was even a single digit pitcher, Carl Edwards Jr., who came in to close out the game. Extra innings, game seven of the World Series, and sadly, he failed. <laughs> the thing that struck me about the game before all the kind of baseball stuff intervened and made it a game where you more kind of scrutinized the play on the field was, you know, it's obviously everyone knows the Cubs hadn't won since 1908 and talking motion pictures where it had not been invented. Um, in 2016, during the game, we get to hear like via wireless microphone, the Cubs first baseman quoting Anchorman. There was just like a kind of striking sort of modernity or post modernity to the whole thing. And it wasn't just, you know, the, the Anchorman thing. It's like in game six, there had been a crucial play in the game that was you know, uh, changed the probability of who was going to win the World Series. There was decided based on the fact that there was like a super HD camera that happened to be pointed right at first base to capture the hair's breadth difference between, you know, when two guys' feet touched the bag. And, and can we say that that was like the, one of the best technological, if not the best technological moment in sports history? I, <laughs> seriously. So there was that. There was also the way that the the games were managed in this kind of post-sabermetric way. And I think it was the first World Series ever where no starter went past six innings. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know if it was exactly fitting, but I just couldn't escape the feeling watching this game that it felt like more than 108 years had passed. Really, it it was just such a kind of modern viewing experience, both yeah. just from a fandom perspective and just from the way the game was played and orchestrated. Yeah, and uh, it was no starter recorded and out in the seventh inning or later, which is crazy amazing. And John Lester on a clear double play ball has to talk underhand to first. One of the most valuable players <laughs> in the World Series for the winning team is in, it cannot do something that 90% of the population in his age and demographic can do, which is throw to a base other than home. Oh, my God. Also, can we just talk about, like, right now at this moment, with the Cubs having won, 
in our lifetime, I think in all of history, if you take the Cubs, if you take the Cavs, if you take Leicester City, it is, we're, mm-hmm. and especially how the Cavs won it down 3-1, how the Cubs won it down 3-1, I mean, there are certain ways to judge the unlikelihood of sports outcomes. You know, one of them, Las Vegas tells you the odds before the season, and that wasn't so much of a surprise except for maybe Leicester City, you know? But then there is just the accrual of years without a championship, right? Think of it as like a stone in your backpack for every year and how much it weighs on the fan base. But then within the series itself that this weight comes off you, within that series, both of the Cavaliers and the Cubs are down to, you know, mid-double, like teen-digit chances of actually winning their series. Probably the Cavs were even down to high single digits. What an amazing time. Uh, Anything is possible, to quote... To quote Kevin Garnett. (laughs) Stefan, I think um, what's striking to me about the way the Cubs won it is the kind of connection to what happened with the Red Sox in 04 and coming back from down 3-0 to the Yankees. I was just going to make that point. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, there is this sense among a fan base – and even though it's not the same players on the Cubs that were have been there and failed before, I think it creeps into the psyche of the players that there is this hill to climb that's higher than it is for other teams. And when the Red Sox came back from 3-0 in a way that no team had ever done before, the Cubs come back from 3-1 and blow this lead with their great closer on the mound. And then there's a rain delay. Um, and then they do it in extra innings on the road in a game seven. There is a sense, I think, that um, something has been overcome that's more than just the obstacles in a single series and in a single game, and that something has been slayed and that the franchise can now move on and I'm sure no matter how the Cubs would have won, there would have been that sense. But the manner in which it was done, it was like, we are now, um, you know, a, a franchise that's overcome everything in macro and in micro. And in years to come, there will be nothing burdening us anymore. I think that's right. And the thing about this is that the satisfaction that you got as a spectator, as a fan, as a viewer surpassed, I think every other example of these sorts of um, dynastic struggles and comebacks in unlikely circumstances. Um, The thing about 2004 that we forget is that the Red Sox swept the world series. And I know that Red Sox fans don't care how they won that world series, but this will be unforgettable for all fans who, uh, who watched it because of the nature of the series itself because of the nature of the way the games were played because of the questions that each of these games raised because of the up and down performances and the managerial decisions and the underlying historical narrative that, that, that followed these two teams around. And so I think that elevates this series above, you know, probably all the others. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sure there's a recency bias here, recency being 12 hours, 10 hours, eight hours. But I, I think in the long run, I think we will look back at this as somehow 
you know, just sort of the perfect confluence of events, the perfect way for a franchise like Chicago to win. The Cubs drought is totemic. It's something that someone might know two facts about baseball, and those two facts before this year were that the Yankees are great and that the Cubs haven't won forever. So this is a bigger thing to the person who doesn't follow sports than even something like the Miracle on Ice was. Because before the Olympics, most people didn't know anything about hockey. So in a way, this cuts through the culture more than any sporting event ever. One of our colleagues last night was saying like, shit, like one of the two things I know about sports is over now. Right, there's <laughs> nothing left. What's left? Yeah. Hey, you know what? But you know, uh, Rob Gronkowski, though, is thinking it's been 69 years now for the Indians. So he's very excited about that. <laughs> What that, left is Steve is Steve Bartman. That's the last thing. Oh, please mention him not. So no, I mean what if he what if he does a brief, perfect little interview where the world forgives him? Would that be okay, Stefan? Alright, that'd be fine. As long as they play the Serengeti song again. So I think the Cubs drought is sort of um you know, it stands in for a single baseball game, it, it's very long. It can be incredibly frustrating and boring at times. But in, a, in, the, in the right moment, at the end maybe, there's nothing uh, – there, there's no sport that I know of, except maybe Kabaddi, that can pack in <laughs> the kind of suspense and – just weightiness that there is in baseball. And maybe it's because I'm not a Cubs fan. It feels worth it to me. <laughs> the the <laughs> end of that game, I guess like the end of Cavs Warriors was similarly, you're just like nervous and heart pounding for the whole time. But just everything that is kind of frustrate can be frustrating about watching a baseball game just went away and actually made the last two or three innings of last night's game as great as it was. The kind of wait, the waiting, the importance of every pitch, all of the like micro decisions just added up to something unbelievably great. John Smoltz saying irregardless, all of it. It was amazing. I also, just like, just like the Warriors Cleveland series, I was definitely rooting for the Cubs, and I only found that out uh, emotionally when they made that comeback against the Giants, and I started cheering. I'm like, wow, I'm really into them. But when Davis hit the home run, I didn't feel bad. I, I felt good for him, and that was that uh, echoed my feelings during the Warriors-Cleveland series where I was kind of swinging and just enjoying it. And that's because yeah. I'm not so invested in either team. And because I've evolved to this place where I only take joy in sports and not despondency, and maybe even with this broadcast, because I think Joe Buck has been a lot better. I don't know why. On there's a theory that he's not sitting next to Tim McCarver anymore. But I just enjoyed the totality of all the broadcasts and all the coverage. And even though these weren't great games, there was only one other close game. Uh, I, I just enjoyed this series and was satisfied and happy at most every twist and turn. Yeah, you know, there was something holistic about it, and I think the broadcast experience really influences those of us who aren't living and dying with 
every pitch or every victory. And I think Fox was actually improved. The thing that has annoyed me about Fox's baseball coverage for 15 years is the the incessant cutting to fans in the stands as as the moment ratchets up in intensity. They did less of that last night. This was a much more pleasing broadcast, a much more sophisticated and smart broadcast. You had two veteran, knowledgeable uh, reporters on the field in Ken Rosenthal and Tom Verducci. John Smoltz has proven to be a terrific color commentator in the booth. You're right, Mike. I thought Joe Buck was was did not detract at all from the broadcast. I mean, yeah, there were some cliches that began to emanate from the mouths of everybody, particularly during the rain delay. And then you had the weirdness of when they cut back to the booth and you got Pete Rose sitting there talking to Alex Rodriguez. I mean, there was really... From a, from a viewing experience, it was totally satisfying. Okay, last thing. Uh, what, Mike, do you think the next Cubs winning the World Series-esque achievement will be in sports, if anything? I think it's uh, a Butler-esque team winning the NCAA tournament, or maybe it's just a 16 beating a 1. It would seem that a first round of a tournament can't do this. But if a 16 beats a one and then wins the next round, that week of coverage will be amazing. I don't know if it's Cubs-esque, but uh, I think uh, Florida, FAMU, Florida A&M could do it. <laughs> what about you, Stefan? I mean, I do think that the U.S. winning the World Cup, because it's going to be a lot more years before that happens. So I think the historical um, weight of it will, will only grow particularly as the United States cares more about soccer. But there was no expectation that they could have won in, you know, 1950 or whatever the first World Cup was, 1932. So it is hard to imagine. We are not, we are killing all the great narratives. I don't know what sports writers are going to write about. This one is kind of a lame one, especially compared to year two, which I think are better. So forgive me because this is off the top of my head. But I think what would be an extremely huge sports moment, which I think is possible, is Tiger Woods winning the Masters like in his 50s in a kind of Jack Jack Nicklaus-esque way. Um, That that one kind of sucks. I'm sorry. uh, You're you're, you're getting me right after the Cubs won the World Series. The world's upside down. But I do think that would be a huge ratings moment and a huge sports history moment yeah the browns win the super bowl the indians win the world series cleveland still has some demons how about goodell saying i was wrong and donating all his wealth to concussion management investigations (laughs) (laughs) all right we're starting deathbed (laughs) on his deathbed in 2045 we're starting to get into uh counterfactual history here maybe it's a good time to uh, stop the podcast all right that uh will end our special bonus holy shit the cubs finally won the world series podcast we'd love your feedback and what we talked about today you can email us at hangup at slate.com we'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup subscribe to hang up and listen in itunes you can find us at itunes.com slash slate podcasts when you're there leave us a comment and a rating Become a fan on Facebook at facebook.com slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts 
at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember, Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.